Last year, we launched our course, The Data-Driven Classroom, and had hundreds of educators and clinicians take this course with consistently amazing feedback. I heard from so many teachers how this course really changed the way they approach data, how they were able to set up simple data systems, train their paras, and be collecting data to make data-based decisions within days of finishing the course. That feedback made me so happy. Now that course has been closed and unavailable since last year, but guess what? We are reopening the course, the data-based classroom, and I want you to be one of the first ones in. If data is something you have been struggling with for years, let's work on this together. Let me give you all of the tools to make this something that can consistently happen in your classroom. And guess what? Since you are a podcast listener, and I absolutely love my podcast listeners, I have an awesome code for you. When you use the code DATA100, you're going to get $100 off of the course bundle. Now, this code is only going to be usable until March 20th. So you only have one week to use this code, but Data 100 will get you $100 off of that course bundle. So that means for less than $200, you are getting the amazing data toolkit with literally hundreds of data sheets, all editable. And don't worry, I teach you how to edit it. And that entire data-driven course that touches on academic data, behavior data, staff training, and so much more. There's a link in the show notes with all of the information. Let's make this year the year that data really works. Hi, I'm Sasha Long, special ed teacher and board certified behavior analyst. Welcome to the Autism Helper Podcast. I'm here to explore different strategies to improve the lives of individuals with autism. Welcome back to the Autism Helper Podcast. I cannot believe it, but this is the 200th episode, which is just absolutely wild to me. And if you'd have told me 199 episodes ago that I'd be doing the 200th, I wouldn't have believed you. So I'm super excited today because, which I say at the start of probably every podcast episode, but we're doing something a little different today. So on the call right now, I have our director of marketing, Fran, who has worked with us for a really long time in different capacities. And now she pretty much does everything amazing for me. And she is a podcast connoisseur. And I kind of had this idea of having her interview me today for the podcast about the Autism Helper and our podcast and everything. And she so graciously obliged. So Fran, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for the lovely introduction. <laughs> so we're going to turn the tables and I'm going to let you go ahead and get started and, and ask ask away. Of course. I'm sure it's going to be a little bit different being on the receiving end of the questions today. I know. I have to like not be type A and try to be like, you should ask me this now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's start off talking about the podcast, which I can't believe we're at 200 episodes of. It's so so crazy. When, you, when you started the Autism Helper podcast, what were your expectations? I thought it was going to be a lot of work in a, in a negative way, I think. for It was actually my husband's idea, which part of me like doesn't love to give him credit for it, but it was his idea. And for a long time before we started it, he kept saying, we should start a podcast, we should start a podcast. 
And I didn't even listen to podcasts at all at that time. I was like, where are podcasts on Netflix? Like, what are they? Like, I didn't really (laughs) understand what a podcast was. And I was kind of against it for a while because I felt so busy that I didn't want to put anything else on my plate. And I just was like, I'm blogging all the time and doing all these things. I can't add this in. So my expectations, honestly, were that it was going to be a lot of work in a negative way. And it it is a lot of work, but not as effortful as I thought it was going to be. It's it's easier in a lot of ways and comes more naturally to me than I thought it would, if that makes sense. Yeah, it sounds like you are a natural at it from all of the episodes I've listened to. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> but were there ever any big surprises that you faced while you were podcasting? Yes. it. So things that were – I like solo episodes I felt okay about. Like I was like, I can just like talk – about whatever for as long as I need to. Like, give me a top, like schedules, great. Like behavior, awesome. Like I'll talk and talk and talk and talk. That's fine. When it came to doing interviews, I did not realize how hard that was. And I still struggle with interviewing people and am trying to work on my skills with that. But that is hard because you have to kind of, you have to listen to what someone's saying and also think of a follow-up question that makes sense And I'm also like a very active listener. Like I want to go like, "Uh uh-huh, yeah, sure, cool, great. And if you do that, it's awkward to listen to. Like you're interrupting them. So you just have to like sit quietly while they talk, which is hard. And then kind of planning out. You don't want – I don't like episodes that are super scripted. But like, you know, some of the people I've gotten to interview are – you know, have huge knowledge, have a huge knowledge base. They know so much that it's, it's, I can't be like, tell me everything you know. So trying to like focus up a conversation – And an interview has been challenging, figuring out what to talk about. And then doing an actual interview is, there's some skill to it. And I, it's taken me a little bit to get the cadence of it and it's getting easier, but it's still to me difficult. And you have to really think about what you're doing and be on when you're interviewing someone. That makes total sense. Right now I find myself nodding silently instead of interjecting <laughs> to everything that you're saying. So I can understand I that being difficult. I know. So what do you think makes the Autism Helper podcast so relatable to your audience? Well, I hope it's relatable. Um, that's kind of always, that's my goal really with like everything I've done from like blogging, starting blogging 10 years ago that I want to always have this like balance of being real, but also being respectful. And I think that it gets tricky. You know, you want to talk about the really hard parts of the job, that it's not always like beautiful laminated board maker pictures, but you also want to be respectful to like, you know, I talk all the time about like our students are someone's baby and like that person's mom could be listening to what we're talking about. And I want to be respectful of that. So I've always tried to like walk that line of like not being like, you know, like not having a toxic positivity, like that whole thing of like, it's all great, whatever, because it's not always. But it, it also like if we just sit and talk about how hard and horrible it is, that's not productive either. So I've always tried to kind of have both sides. And I like that the podcast, like writing is is a lot of work. Writing a blog post is is a lot of work. And and sometimes what you're trying to say or if you're trying to be funny or like say something in a casual way doesn't always come off when you're writing. Like I look back, I mean, I don't reread really old blog posts, but they're probably kind of cringy. But it, when you're talking, it can be more natural. Like you can explain something more easily. So 
I've always tried to kind of touch on hard topics, talk about, you know, what really is going on in classrooms and in education and when interviewing people, allow them to like share their expertise, share their story. So, and it's super unscripted. Like I plan, I was telling Fran this right before I pressed record, like I, I, I typically plan kind of minimally and almost on purpose. Like I don't, if I have it all scripted out that I'm going to sit here reading and that's not very fun to listen to. So I, I like, which I say weird things then sometimes, like I probably ramble on topics, but it, to me, I want it to feel like you're talking to someone, you know, in your school, like I'm your school colleague, like we work together and we're just chatting about replacement behaviors. So that's kind of always been my goal. Well, 200 episodes later, I think you are succeeding at being relatable <laughs> to the audience. Hopefully. <laughs> um, so what is one thing you wish you would have known before you got into podcasting? I wish I wouldn't have waited so long, to be honest, because there was probably like a year that Matt was like, let's do it. Let's do it. And I was like, if you bring up the podcast one more time, like I'm going to lose my mind. So I wish I wouldn't have waited so long because it was a lot more enjoyable um, than I thought it would be. Like I like that I can just have a conversation, that I can just talk. It's like low prep. Like with a blog post, there's like editing and photos and this. And here I just... I just get on. And also it's different than like filming like a YouTube video or a training video. Like, I mean, to be like kind of surface level here, I kind of like that I don't have to like do my hair and makeup. You know what I mean? That I can be like in workout clothes and still record a bunch of podcast episodes or podcast interviews. So I wish I kind of wouldn't have waited so long. And I also wish I, I didn't know, which has been so great, the kind of connections that it gives you. Um, like I am you know, I always kind of struggle. Am I like extrovert or introverted? I am, I think I'm definitely both, but I don't, you know, in this kind of social media world, you don't always have the opportunity to like network. Like I don't regularly attend like in-person conferences and like go to the like networking happy hour for BCBAs. Like that would be, <laughs> that would be a struggle for me. Like I've done that, but I don't love to do that. And then of course, like we haven't always had that opportunity in the last two years to go to in-person conferences. So it's been really cool actually to connect with other professionals, other parents, other teachers through the podcast and really get to know them. Like I've met so many people. I was kind of scanning through the list of episodes the other day and and I've done way more interviews than I thought. You know, I would say, I don't know if it's like half and half, half interviews, half solo episodes, but it might be more interviews even probably actually. And it's so great to get to connect with people. Cause then, you know, I have like run into those people or connected to those people later. I've been like, Hey, do you want to come do something for my membership? Or we're at a conference together and they've been on the podcast. So I, I kind of like know them, which is really cool. And to, to develop those connections and that, and that network was something I hadn't really anticipated. Absolutely. And you've interviewed such a wide variety of people from people who have massive platforms already to people who may not have ever had a platform if you would not talk to them on the podcast and introduce them to your audience. So that yeah. kind of leads into my next question of, do you have a favorite interview that you conducted, which I realize might not be a totally fair question because you've done so many, but no, is there no. a favorite and what was that like? So you know, Fran had sent me these questions, some of these questions already. And I, and my initial reaction when I read this question were like two people actually popped into my head who like 
you just said are, are, are extremely different. Um, and then going through the list, then I was like, oh God, there's so many more great ones. Um, but two that popped into my head, number one is like, no surprise is Temple Grandin. Like that was like a huge bucket list moment. Like I did not think I would ever in a million years interview Temple Grandin. When I got my first teaching job and knew that most of my kids had autism, I read every book she had out at that time. And teaching in pictures really shaped a lot of the ways that I, I set up my classroom, one of her books. And I got to, I've gotten to see her speak a few times and have like met her, you know, very briefly at a conference. And to get to interview her was, was really cool. It was very scary. Like I was very, very nervous. Um, and she was lovely. Um, and great and asked me questions back, which I was like, oh my gosh, Temple Grandin's asking me a question, but she's so inspirational, like to me as an educator on everything she's accomplished and, and I love how straightforward she is. So that obviously is a great one. And then my other one is an interview I did, God, I mean, probably 200 episodes. It's like a few years, right? So it was like in the early, early, I would say in the 20s or 30s. So the episodes um, is a parent, Jody Warshawski. Hopefully I'm saying her last name right. Um, and she and I have connected a f- in a few different ways since then. Um, and she is this like amazing, amazing parent. Um, and her daughter, Remy, um, has autism and has epilepsy and um, a few other kind of medical um, conditions. And she shared her story in such a beautiful way. And the way she like I mean, I'm like getting, I'm like getting goosebumps even thinking back to that episode because I, the way she talked to educators, cause she knows my audience is like mostly teachers, not necessarily parents, but was like so beautiful on just like, you know, the, the main thing you can do from a parent's perspective is just like love our kids because, and I remember her saying this, like our biggest fear is that no one will love our kids as much as we do. And like, and then at the end of the day, and I, and I, need to like remind myself a lot is like, especially if it's a behavior analyst, it's like data and this and that. And it's like, that's all great. But at the end of the day, like in a non-behavioral analytic way, like love your love on your students, you know, that's what they need. That's what their parents need to see. And if you can accomplish that, you know, you're kind of set for the year. So that was a really, a really great episode. Mary Barbera also was a great episode like that. And that was a great kind of connection to make and getting to know her better. I was on her podcast and we've done some collaboration too. And she was also someone that I looked up to a lot as a newer BCBA. So when she reached out and was like, hey, do you want to be on my podcast? And I could be on yours. And I was like, oh my God, holy crap. Mary Barbera is Facebook messaging me. Um, So that was pretty cool too. And she's actually been on twice. Um, so yeah, there's, but there's been, I mean, there's been so many great ones and, and great, you know, relationships to build too with other professionals and parents and stuff. That's so awesome to hear. It's been, it's been, been fun to listen along. So, all right. Last question about the podcast before we switch gears. Do you have any advice for aspiring podcasters? Yeah, I think just do it. You know, it doesn't have to be so complicated. There's so many like easy platforms online for like, use it to setting up your interviews and hosting your podcast. Like that's all super easy. Like the tech stuff is not hard. Um, we have a microphone, like my cousin is a music producer cause I have like a million cousins. So I have like a cousin that can do everything. So one of my cousins is a producer and he edits our episodes, but like, you don't even need that. Like we just happen to have that connection. You don't, you can keep it super simple. And I don't think you need to like stress about the production and like the editing and the scripting of it. What am I going to talk about? Like people to me, I don't love like listening to podcasts like that either. Like I like 
something that is more natural feels like I'm just like chatting with someone and they're like sharing what they know. So I feel like if it's, you know, something you're interested, do it. And, you know, people get, I think now, because this is a few years ago that I've started, people now are like, well, there's too many podcasts. Like, I mean, if we said that about everything, you know, there'd never be a new TV show. It's like, well, there's too many TV shows out. Well, whatever. People are, people get sick of podcasts they listen to. So there's always, you know, space for new voices. So I feel like just start. I think that's such good advice because as you called me a podcast connoisseur, I'm constantly looking for new podcasts. I feel (laughs) like after I finish one in like a two day period, I'm like, I need, I need the next one. I need something else to binge. So I think that's really good advice. All right. So let's switch gears and talk a little bit about you and your journey to creating the autism helper. How did the autism helper come about? How was it born? So honestly, like it started like small, but everything grew very organically. So I was um, a special ed teacher and had just finished or no, I was in the second year of grad school to get my master's in ABA. So I'd actually finished all the content and most of the supervision. I just was like had my thesis to do. And I was actually share. I did was at TPT's um, Teachers Pay Teachers conference this summer and was sharing the story. And so I like reflecting on this story a lot, which is is kind of funny. Um, so it was ten years ago in July. I was in my childhood best friend's wedding. We were on a trolley taking a million photos, and I'm talking to her new sister in law, who's a second grade teacher in Ohio, and was like, "Oh, I I sell on Teachers Pay Teachers," and I was like, "Oh, I've never heard of that. What is it?" And she was like, "Yeah, it's this platform where you like sell your stuff, blah blah." blah. So the next Monday after the weekend, I go on Teachers Pay Teachers and check it out, and it's kind of like you know Etsy for teachers. And there's not really anything special ed related on there. There's not really anything autism related. There's no adapted books, no file folders. And that was literally all I did. Like I had no stuff for my classroom. And I tell this story all the time. Like I had no things. Like I walked into an empty class carrying like a roll of paper towel. And so I was always making stuff. Like I had, and teachers that have taught for a long time will remember those like task galore books. There were like three books. There were red, one was red, one was yellow, one was blue. And they were books that just had pictures of work tasks. Like that was all it was. Cause this was, this was like 15 years ago. This was before like Pinterest or anything. And I had those books and I made every single task in all three of those books. Cause I just like, I, I needed things to do and skills to work on and blah, blah, blah. So I had all these materials that I'd made on my computer. So I was like, oh my God, I should post my stuff here. So I had a desktop computer in my classroom. And this was like totally probably illegal and I shouldn't have done this. I was teaching summer school. I brought the entire desktop computer home, like the huge, massive, ancient, like it was probably like 20 years old because it was like, you know, from the school district I worked for, Um, bought literally the whole thing home, which my my classroom was on the fourth floor of an old building. So I'd like truck it down four flights of stairs in a non-air-conditioned building in July and then bring it to my apartment, which I was on the second floor of a tall building. So it was like up and down stairs, in and out of my car, this massive monitor. And I set it up on my dining room table, like this huge computer. And I just started pulling my products from there and resources and uploading them. And my like husband, who was not my husband then, like I, we lived together, came in and was like, what's going on here? And I was like, don't worry about it. And he's like, okay, good. So I, I started posting on Teachers Pay Teachers from my classroom desktop computer in my apartment. And I was like, oh, I should. And then my, this girl had told me she has a blog too. And I'd always kind of thought it'd be like cool to start a blog, but I had no idea how to start a blog. And because I wanted to share like 
pictures from my class, like photos. And I had like tried to do it a few years ago, but didn't know how. Because oftentimes there were consultants from my district that would come in to my room and take photos of everything to like share with other teachers, which I liked that they did that, of course. But I was also like, I don't know, maybe selfishly, I was like, are you going to credit me? Like tell them this is like my idea. <laughs> like, I don't know, you don't, you get so little like feedback as a teacher. So I wanted to like just share the pictures and like videos or whatever. So my friend who was in web design set up my first website and set up my logo, which I think you know this story, Fran, the very first autism helper logo, the word autism was spelled wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I do remember that. <laughs> it was only on there for a few days. But um, and I just started blogging. Just no one was listening, started blogging that summer, right before school started in August. I started blogging and I just kind of went all in. So I was like, well, and I'm this is like a little bit my personality to a detriment. I was like, well, I should blog. Okay, great. I'm gonna blog every day until I like lose my mind. And that's kind of what I did. Like I blogged seven days a week for a few years and which was like not necessary and excessive, but I was just like, all right, well, I'm going to blog every day now. So I blogged every day while teaching and start kept making resources. And it like, it became a pretty nice cycle almost of, I would, there'd be a need in my classroom. Like, oh, we have to work on the understanding the temperature and how the temperature relates to what we wear and if it's cool or hot or cold and I and I'm labeling that so I'd make like a visual bar graph and with visuals of clothing and I'd be like okay this works really well in my classroom so I take pictures of it I'll blog about it and then I would put it online to sell because people would be like I want this and it was like this nice little like rotation of like I was always like thinking of things I needed for my class and when if it like just became this kind of trend of like, if I needed it, typically someone else did too. So, and there, and I, you know, no, there was so little out there for teachers. So I did that for a while. Um, and I did a lot of videos. Like I never really was shy being on video. Cause I, I don't really, I don't ever really watch myself. Um, so I was like, all right, it would make, it would be more helpful for me if I could see it, a video of it. So it would probably be more helpful for other people. Like, so that first like three months in, you know, I started everything in July. And that first September, I made my husband, then boyfriend, come to my classroom after school with my digital camera, take a video tour of my class. And I thought it would be like five minutes and it was 45 minutes because I just talked. <laughs> and then I had to like learn how to use iMovie to edit it because I was like, no one's going to want to watch this on YouTube. Um, so I did that for a few years, just kind of blogged and videoed and made products. And then things started kind of snowballing a little bit in like a, in like a really nice, I think, organic way. I started, I was a BCBA then I, I finished my thesis, um, became a BCBA. So I started doing a little bit of in-home consulting as a BCBA. And then I started getting asked to do school consulting, like after school or like virtually through Skype. Skype was a thing. And so I started doing that a little bit. And then people started asking if I would come present. And I was like, and I just was kind of saying yes to everything. So I was like, sure. And then later I was like, ah, crap, I don't, I don't know how to present. And like, that was like terrifying to me at first. Um, so I was like, yeah, sure. Someone, you know, a place it actually in Texas was the first place that I like flew to for a presentation. And I took a personal day from work and flew there and presented and flew back and then I started getting asked to do that more and more. So that kind of just, that was kind of how it, it all started. It just all kind of snowballed a little bit, I would say. 
I love it. I feel like as an MBA student right now, listening to you so naturally discover this need that you were a part of that needed filling and then creating products that you were like, I need these, other people must need them. And I mean, look at the Autism Helper now, we're at eight, I think eight full-time employees plus what started as a one woman blog is now a team of, I think over 10 bloggers. It's just, it's really crazy to see how much it's grown in 10 years. It's so crazy. Like so, so crazy. All right. So thinking back to Sasha 15-ish years ago, if I'm getting that <laughs> correct, like maybe even before that, when did you realize you wanted to teach special ed? Yeah, that was for sure more than 15 years ago. Um, <laughs> uh, so I, in high school, thought I wanted to be a social worker. Um, two of my aunts are social workers, and I worked in a Head Start preschool that I really loved, and which is not being a social worker, but I just kind of associated that with that. And so I, when I went to like my undergrad orientation, I think it was, they were like all these sessions you could go to, like you could go to like the education session, the business session, the undecided session. So we went to the undecided session, which was like stupid as with my dad. And then we went to the education. And then I kind of thought maybe about special ed. Cause when I taught in this head or when I volunteered in Head Start preschool, there was a little girl with down syndrome who I loved working with. So then we, we went to the undecided session, we went to the social work session, and then we went to the education session. And I was sitting at the end of this education session that no one was in because it was like the third one and ended up talking to one of the special ed professors. I don't have no idea even who they were. And they were like, you should just declare a major. And then because you can always change it. Like it's better just like have something declared instead of being undecided. So you just declare something. And so I was like, all right, I'll just declare special ed. Like, I don't know why. It was like, I feel like not a lot of thought was put into it. But I also was very, like, my mom kept being like, if you go into social work, you have to get your master's. Like, everyone that goes into social work has to get their master's. And at, like, 17 years old, I was like, oh, I don't want to get my master's, which, you know, I ended up doing anyways. But so I was like, well, I don't want to get my master's, so I'm, I'll just go into special ed. Um, but in uh, in undergrad, you had to do kind of practicum hour you had to do student teaching of course but like before that you had to do practicum hours and then in the summers you had to get a certain amount of hours working with kids with disabilities so I started that next summer doing special recreation which I did for a few years and I loved loved special recreation um and that was I was a one-on-one I was a director camp director just like kind of different roles like an inclusion aide and I really liked that I loved um some of the practicum sites that I had student teaching, I didn't exactly get the right type of placement, but I like by then knew I was in the right place and I knew what I wanted. Like my, my student teaching was in more like an inclusion resource setting. And I kind of knew like I didn't want that at that point that I wanted more of a self-contained setting. So that's kind of what like pushed me in that direction. I love it. So you kind of mentioned when you were 17, looking at colleges that you were like, I am not going to go get my master's degree. (laughs) <laughs> and you did. So yeah. what made what made your mindset pivot? What made you want to pursue the master's in ABA and get your BCBA? You know, I wish I like, I feel like my memory is sometimes so bad. I wish I had like a clearer answer to that. So I was like, I think about five, maybe five or six years, maybe six years into teaching. And I know I was like researching programs and then looking at like maybe a master's in special ed, but I didn't, I didn't feel like that would necessarily give me the skills I was missing. 
I think at this point I had some pretty extreme um, students in my class or some extreme behaviors with students in my class, excuse me. And um, I, I didn't really know what to do. You know, it's like they're a consultant will come in for 20 minutes and be like, you know, have you tried a visual? And you're like, okay, shut up. Goodbye. Like, and I like hate that, you know, it's like, you know, have you ever thought of using a schedule for this student? And you're like, yeah, Linda, goodbye. So I was like, <laughs> had like extreme behaviors and I didn't know what to do. Like, and it's like, you can't then get to academic instruction. And so that's kind of what brought me to ABA and I think like and ver- learning online really wasn't really a thing. And there was a program in ABA in Chicago and uh, the teacher I was working with um, at the time wanted to do it too. So I was like, all right, let's both do it and we'll go together. So that like worked really well. We went after school and went to class and like it was kind of nice because I feel like at that point, even still, you know, the the field of ABA is like mostly focused, like most BCBAs, I think, work in more of like a clinic, in-home setting. And in a clinic or in-home setting, everything is very controlled. There's a lot more resources. It's just different than a public school. So I, I to this day, I love that, like, I feel like I'm a, a teacher first, a BCBA second. Like, I always think of everything through like a public school lens. Like, yeah, that strategy is great. But like, what if you have no staff? What if you have 12 kids? Like, I feel like I was always the like, wait a minute, but person in class of like, wait, what if this kid did that? What if you didn't have that? Like that strategy sounds cool, but like, I don't have a staff for that. Like, so I like that I learned about ABA from that lens and always thinking about that lens. So that it really was like trying to meet the needs of my students and their, you know, behaviors was that what kind of brought me there. It seems like it seems like such a natural progression of how you yeah. decided, you know what, maybe at 17, I didn't think I wanted to do this. But <laughs> now, so many years later, I'm like, this is, I need this because I need these skills in order to be able to be a better teacher in this public school setting that I'm in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So it, it did seem natural. I mean, it was like looking back super hard. Like, I don't, like, I for sure had like, I mean, Matt and I joke about like there were like two years where I think I just like lost my mind a little bit and was like because I was also and then I started thoughts and helper towards the end of that but like I was taking you know three or four classes and then teaching full-time and having hard kids like I there was a period where I lost like I think three pairs of gym shoes at the gym like I would just like leave my gym shoes there I like locked myself in the bathroom once because I like was rushing and messed up our doorknob. Like I just kept like, I left my keys in my car with my car running on Grand Avenue in Chicago for like an hour. Like I just was like, not like my body was like, you need to slow down and take a break. But I mean, I didn't have kids yet. So it felt like doable then. I probably should have like paced it out a little more looking back, but you know, got done. So you called yourself a teacher first and a BCBA second. I think it'd be great for people to understand like what ultimately made you leave teaching and do you miss it? Yeah. Um, so once I started doing, I, so I started kind of what I was saying, I started, you know, getting asked to do more consulting and more training. And actually this kind of ties into like me losing my mind a little bit and feeling overwhelmed. Um, so when I was, I started getting asked to do more and more like live workshops and professional developments. And at the time I had a principal who like knew what I was, you know, working, doing, and he was pretty open and flexible. And I, I used personal days. Like I just took a personal day and I would go travel and I would try to take a red eye home. Um, but it was completely 
not sustainable. Like I was at this point, you know, teaching full time, blogging, maybe I'd cut down to five days a week after doing seven days for a little bit. I cut down to five days, which felt like rebellious, but that's still so much blogging, blogging five days a week, creating resources. And then I was consulting with a few schools and students, and then I was traveling. So it was just like, you know, I, and that's probably when some of these, like me losing my gym shoes at the gym and like leaving my car, leaving my car running on Grand Avenue is when I was consulting with the school. And that was like, okay, I'm doing too much. Like I literally, like I like, couldn't find my keys when I was leaving. I was talking to the principal. I'm like, oh, it's so weird. I don't know where my keys are. My keys were in my car with my car on, like on a busy street. And I was like, oh, I God. can't believe your car didn't get stolen. <laughs> yeah. How did my car not get stolen? Like, so yeah, I think, you know, I knew something had to give. And as sad as I was to step away from the classroom, I was really excited the, at, at the idea of being able to affect the field at such a big level, at like a global level. Like I was consulting with a parent in India. Like I was consulting with a mom in Sri Lanka. I was talking to teachers in England and Canada that wanted resources with Canadian money. And it was like, oh my gosh, like as much as I love the 12 kids that are in my class and the 12 kids that are in my class next year and all that, look, I mean, there's, I could have potential, you know, quote unquote students all over the world because there, there's such a need here for curriculum, for resources, for training and for advice. So I, I miss the students, of course. Um, obviously there's like things I don't miss, like, you know, working with challenging adults and paperwork and all of those things. But, um, you know, it was the right decision for me to not, I mean, I wouldn't have been able to do both for much longer. So, um, I still, I still get to see a lot of my former students, which is kind of cool. I saw one of them last weekend. He's now, um, 21 and has like a beard and still remembers, you know, on my phone the day and the year of like certain events. He's like, let me see your phone. I want to see January 27th, 2011. Cause I was blah, blah, blah. And he was right. I was, he was, and he's in the picture of my phone still. Um, so that's kind of nice to still stay connected to some of those families. But yeah, I, of course, miss the kids the most. All right. So now I'm going to ask you a little bit of a heavier question, but I think it's important in the terms of like reflecting on your 200 episodes in the last 10 years of the Autism Helper, because you've gone through a lot and done a lot. So what would you consider your biggest failure during this experience? And how did you learn from that experience? Honestly, I think kind of what I was just, it wasn't like one thing, but I think that whole like season of life of trying to do all of the things at once. And like, I've had a few times in my life where like my body's had a very like physical reaction to stress. And one time, and I talk, I've talked about this on the podcast a few times was I had a, a student with some pretty extreme behavior and I like literally had hives all over my body every night. And I thought it was like the detergent I was using or the lotion. And I kept going to dermatologist and it was stress. Like my body was like stressed and trying, I think to do too much too maybe too quickly, or I don't know what the right word is with the autism helper and trying to, you know, saying yes to everything. Like there's a, there's a good thing in that, but there's also a bad thing in that. Like being like, yeah, I'm going to go fly somewhere and take the red eye home and then come back to, and present and then come back to my classroom. Like I could have said no to those things, like, but I didn't really feel like I could. Um, 
So it took me a really long time to have like any semblance of work-life balance um, at all. Like my husband used to come over and like close the laptop on my fingers and be like, we're all done here. Um, so, and that, la- that what like, you know, lasted on and off for a few years. So that whole period, I don't think I handled that well. And it was really hard. And I think looking back, you know, I could have still grown the autism helper and helped people and done all these things and been a good teacher without like trying to kill myself in the process. So I think not being able to have that balance and those boundaries um, was probably that. And that, and learning that like, that's not, you know, that's not the way to do it. Like, and I really wasn't that way as a teacher, like as a teacher, I worked hard, but I was never like, you know, I'm here at 7 p.m. at night, like working all weekend. Like I, I had decent balance before then. Um, but I think it was when I was like trying to do two things at once. Um, that was really challenging and like caused probably problems. But I, I've gotten better at obviously now, you know, years later balancing things. But it takes a while to like get good at that and get over your like guilt on things and what you could be doing and all that. And like just because you could be doing it doesn't mean you should. You had a lot going on. Yeah, so, it was a lot. Yeah. I think that it's only natural that you got burnt out doing everything all at the same time and trying to make it all happen, especially with the last two years with the COVID pandemic. I feel like one thing that a lot of us have walked away with is that it's okay to say no to things. And I know you talk yes. about this all the time, like teaching our students that the importance of saying no, but it's important to take your own advice too and be like, it's okay to not say yes to this engagement or, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stay home and in true Sasha fashion, turn on Bravo and watch housewives tonight <laughs> yeah. instead of going to this event. <laughs> yes. And, you know, I say like, Oh, I've gotten better at it. Like, I mean, and I have for sure, but like, I don't want to have like any miss, you know, be it misconstrued. Like I ha- by no means I'm good at this. And like, thinking, I mean, that all of those situations of like when I was at the end of when I was teaching and like traveling while teaching all that. I mean, that was like eight years ago. That was a long time ago. That was before I had kids. And that was probably even before I was married. But I mean, that that's happened recently too. Like my, my son is two years old and a big regret I have. And like, Matt doesn't like, even when I say this, because he's like, I mean, what are the point of regrets? Whatever. You can't change it. But I had my son at the, after a few months into the pandemic. So we were like, you know, it was hard to like work while our kids were home and we were launching our behavior course and we had all these things going on with work that we were really excited about. And then I had my son and we opened enrollment for our membership in September. I had him in the middle of the July and like, I didn't have any time to like prep, you know, any stuff for when I was like going to be on after having a baby because it had been the pandemic. We hadn't had childcare. And I really took no maternity leave with him. Like I was on a call with our web developers when he was, my baby was four days old. And I, and I just, and I love, I love working. I do. I love everything I do now. So it never like feels like, oh, I got to go do this. And I was like excited about the membership opening. We did a live webinar and all this. And, and I didn't have to do that. Like looking back, I'm like, I did a live webinar with like hundreds of people on the call when I was like six weeks postpartum, like, what was I doing? Like I hadn't even been cleared yet for exercise and I was doing a live webinar, but it just like felt like that. Oh, that's what, that's my calendar. That's what I do. And like, looking back, I'm like, I kind of miss that. I didn't get those like, you know, uninterrupted or guilt-free like newborn days that are part of a maternity leave or that were at least for me, for the girls. Um, 
so yeah, like I, you know, I say like, oh, I'm so much better at work-life balance. But like, I mean, that was two years ago that I did that. So, you know, you, you keep learning from, from, from it, you know. Right. And you got to give yourself grace too, because those are really hard times. And like you said, with three kids at home, also running your business from home, it's not the typical job where like you're forced to take maternity leave. Like this is your business. And it's yeah. like, if you're not running it, is Matt running it? Are we running yeah. it? I mean, our team yeah. is a lot smaller then. So it's not like you really have the ability to hand a lot of the work that you were doing off. Yeah, that's true. All right. So changing over from your biggest failure. So what do you consider your biggest accomplishment? What are you most proud of with the autism helper? Uh, that's a good question. Um, There's a lot to pick from. I know. <laughs> I'm really proud of the membership. The membership was never like on like a long-term plan. It wasn't like for years we'd been building this, but it again also kind of came about like organically too. We, um, you know, so I was traveling a ton for work. Like I was doing sessions like all over the country and I would always like story about it and all like, oh, I'm going here to do this session. And people were always like, oh my God, can you send me your slides? Like all the time. And, and I felt bad because I was like, I, I can't send you my slides because my slides aren't the whole training. Like if I send you my behavior workshop slides, like that's not the training. Like there's so much I talk about besides the slides. And so, and I hadn't even really thought about like an online course, but we started, and actually Mary Barbera was like, you should start a membership, which it shows like all these podcast interactions, you know? And I was like, I don't know. I don't know if that's the right fit for me. And then we started like learning about memberships and I took a course about a membership. And then I was like, and this was probably in, I would say the spring, late spring. And I was like, oh my God, I want to do a membership and I want to do it about training. Like not about like stuff. Like I didn't want the membership about resources. I wanted it about training. Cause I was like, this is how people could get the training that they want, that they see me like, oh, I'm in, you know, Tulsa, I'm in Texas, I'm in Arizona giving this training and, and they want to see it. That's great that they want to learn. But like I could do a membership that's all about training versus being about you know just downloads like we you can go buy downloads if you need it so we like hustled like that summer and I traveled a ton that summer like I I think in July I was gone like 21 days but we were like all right we want it it would make sense to open it to start in September so we like film like planned and filmed and I like these crazy post-its planning out all the videos and and that's been like so amazing like the teachers in there are so nice and so collaborative like you know, we used to have a Facebook group. Now we have it, the, the, ch- the kind of the chat and like activity feed in our app and on our website. And like that has never needed a lot of monitoring. Like there's never been like people being nasty. Like I'm in all these other special ed groups on Facebook and people are just like mean and like, how dare you say that? Blah, blah, blah. Like even if people word something wrong or like are venting, like people come in so supportive and I've loved watching that. Like I've been very proud of that and seeing teachers support each other and being like, oh, you have this. Let me share a photo of this and, and parents too. Um, Facebook's so definitely, definitely a scary place right now. It <laughs> is. Oh, my gosh. As um, the person who manages your social media, yes. I am very happy that we're on the app and not having to deal with a lot of the trolls that come along yes, with Facebook yeah. and social media in general. It's it's really an uplifting and kind of beautiful space for people to yeah. collaborate and share their experiences and find new ideas. And, um, and I, As someone and who's not a special educator, I learn from it. 
Yeah. And like, it can be so isolating. Like I, you know, teachers are like, oh, I'm the only teacher in my district here. Like I'm in a rural area. Like now they can connect with someone that lives two states over that's in a similar type of classroom. And so that to me, you know, is super cool. Um, other, I'm really proud of the curriculum too. The curriculum was like, you know, I talked earlier about like making a product that I needed in my class and then selling it. Like that was like the be all end all of like, I need a plan. Because I felt very, once I got like, okay, we're in a good groove, things are going well here, I was like, what do I teach? Like, and I would make these like monthly lesson plans and I was like going through like common core standards and spe- essential elements and like maybe I should work on prepositions. Okay, let's work on prepositions. Oh, wait, this kid should work on colors. And it just, I felt all over the place with like what I was teaching and when. And so the main thing I wanted to do and the curriculum started with language arts and math was really almost that curriculum map was like, I need an order of what to teach because I'm like, I can't teach like prepositions Monday. And then like, I'm going to teach, um, you know, summarizing Tuesday and just like bounce around haphazardly. Cause like my kids, I just felt like, Oh my God, my kids have to work on everything. How am I going to get to that? So having that like curriculum map and then the stuff that it was like, this could, you know, because you have so many levels and that's to me, one of the most overwhelming parts about being a self-contained teacher. Like, yes, the behaviors are hard, but, having to like not only know the content but have resources to teach the content for that many grade levels like if you're a first through fourth grade teacher that really means you're probably teaching six grade levels because you're probably doing pre-k k first second third fourth so that's like six grade levels of stuff like just like logistically that's a pain in the butt so the curriculum was like such a like very long coming solution to like the biggest problem I had. And like now that like we have six subjects and, and so much, and so much of how the curriculum has grown has been from user feedback. Like, Hey, we need a level below one. Like one is too hard for my kids. What should we do? I mean, I, in hindsight, I would have never named something 0.5 level, but like, it was like, okay, I can make something easier. And like, oh, between one and two is too big of a jump. What should we do? Oh, I should make a 1.5. Again, the idea of a 1.5 level is not, was not in the big picture plan, but like people wanted it. And like, oh, what about science? And what about reading comprehension? So it all was like, it's been cool how that has grown and it's so exciting that like that is literally used in like thousands and thousands of classrooms around the world. Um, so that's for sure. Like, so like membership I'm proud of the, the curriculum I'm proud of. And the last thing I'm really proud of is the team that we've built. And again, like, I think, yeah, I think we have now seven full-time employees and then we also have a lot of, um, like contractors, like just like people that are part-time, like bloggers and people that help edit the podcast and things like that. But yeah, like I would have never dreamed that we would have had seven employees like is crazy. And I've, I've been, we've been so, so lucky finding such amazing people to work for us and that work together so well and bring different skill sets to the table. Like we have a BCBA, we have some former teachers, we have someone that used to work in a law firm, like you, I mean, you're not from the education field at all, Fran. Like, you know, so Fran used to work for National Geographic. So am I allowed to, sorry, maybe am I allowed to say that? I don't know if I can. Yeah, you can say that. It's okay. fine. <laughs> um, so, you know, it's, I've been so lucky to find such great people that like also care about our, you know, our audience and our company and like have just really helped it grow in such a huge way. And I'm like, so, so proud of that, that like, I get to work with all of you guys and that you guys care about this as much as I do. 
Well, you should be proud of all of that. As your employee for the past, oh my gosh, almost four Almost five years, I think I oh my started, gosh. which is crazy. Four or five years when I started part time with you guys, like it's amazing to see how much the team has grown and how much you've grown. And for any, everyone listening, Sasha's a great boss, and I'm not just saying <laughs> that. We have a lot of fun together as a team, and um, it's 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 really special. And I hope that comes across in all of our content. And obviously, Sasha is the face of the brand, but um, there's a lot of work that comes into it from all sides, from all yes. our different backgrounds to make the autism hopper what it is. Yes. Oh, that's, I didn't tell you, I didn't tell her to say that. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't tell me to say that. That was, that was all natural. <laughs> all right. So Sasha, if you could choose one autism helper resource that you think should be in every classroom, what would it be? And we'll make sure to throw the link in the show notes. I'm going to be like obvious here and broad, but I think the curriculum, I really do. Um, Because to me, besides like challenging behaviors are a big obstacle in a classroom, but the, the trying to like have the content and resources to do all the things is, is so hard. And the curriculum is really simple, but it's really simple on purpose. Like, so it's like, you can just, you don't have to read pages and learn about something. It's just like, print it and go and let's get going. Let's start learning. Let's start teaching. It's meant to be able to be used in different ways. And you could do it small group. You can have a para run it. You could use an easier level to send home for homework. You could, you should build upon it. You know, it's, it's, the, it's really the framework for me. And then that's how you create extension activities from that. So to me, that solves one of the biggest problems that I know a lot of teachers face. I love it. All right, Sasha, we're at 40 some minutes now. So this is my last question for you. All right. Last question. What is next for the autism helper? You know, who knows? Like I used to, (laughs) I used to be like, this is so funny. Like a few, you know, my Matt and I talk about the autism helper all the time, but like a few years ago, I think it was when my middle child was born. We had just started, maybe we had just started the podcast and maybe this is like really taking it full circle here. And I was like, you know, we, we have all the things now. We've done all the things, Matt. We have the blog. We have our store on TPT. We have YouTube. And now we have podcasts. So that's it. We've done all the things. And I do speaking. So that's it. Those are all the options. And like, man, I've been like super proved wrong on that. Like um, now we have a membership and now there's courses. And now we have our own store. And now we have curriculum access. Like they're just, there are just things that I don't know will have, like don't even haven't thought of yet or haven't become a thing yet. So now I'm like way more open to that of like, oh, who knows? Um, But I also have really big plans for curriculum access Um, because this is almost like our first iteration of it, but I really want to make it truly like digital and interactive and like something that is really robust. And we have like basically the framework there, but eventually I want to like really build upon that. We're right now working on extension activities and IEP goal alignment, all kinds of new stuff like that. But there's, I mean, there's so much we want to do with that to really build that out that I think that's going to be like our next kind of big focus in the, in like the short term, like few years or maybe short, long term, whatever that is. Yeah. And if people haven't heard, there's the new subject coming out this winter. Yes. And a new subject, life skills, which again, asked for people are like, I need life skills. I need stuff for my 
high school transition student. So, and basically like moral of the story in all this is like, if you ask us for stuff, like spoiler alert, we'll probably make it. So like, if you ask for like content or training or types of resources, like that's where, you know, we often get ideas of like, oh, people want this, like we'll probably make it, so. Yes, DM us, message us, email us. We will respond. We will put your ideas on a list. We have a long running list of new ideas of products to create. Yes, always. And as we wrap up here, you know, I was thinking one of the other hard things about podcasting and like making videos in general is ending anything. Like Matt makes fun of me all the time. Like I'll have like a great start to something. I'll like go through this whole video so excited or a training and then it's done. I'm like, okay, thanks. Bye. Like I just like never know how to wrap things up. So, I mean, on that note, I feel like we should just, we'll just wrap it up abruptly, right? let's abruptly wrap it up like a team meeting almost (laughs) I do that with our team meetings too I'm like all right everyone that's it bye um but but but, this was really fun I can't believe it's been 50 minutes I thought this would take like 20 um but truly like you know to everyone if you're still listening at 50 minutes like you are truly a dedicated podcast listener so I appreciate you and and a huge huge thank you to everyone that has listened oh my gosh we would like would not be recording 200 podcast episodes without, you know, all of our amazing listeners. And I love getting feedback from you guys, hearing what episodes you like, you know, people are like, Oh, I always read, listen to this episode every year. You know, that it's so great to hear. And you guys are all, you know, teachers, clinicians, parents, you guys are all rock stars that you are taking your time to learn more. So, you know, thank you to everyone listening. Thanks for listening to the autism helper podcast. If you liked what you heard and want to hear more, hit subscribe. It would mean a lot to me if you left some feedback. Whether I'm working one-on-one with a student, doing a podcast like this one, or presenting for a PD, my goal is always to provide as much value as I can. So your feedback really helps me make sure I'm doing just that. If you have other topics you'd like me to cover, leave in the feedback or message me on social media. You can follow me at The Autism Helper on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Pinterest. Or visit my website, theautismhelper.com. Thanks again for listening. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Having the right resources for your classroom is essential to making sure your classroom is running smoothly. At the Autism Helper Shop, we have all of the resources you need to make sure you have the behavior, communication, and curriculum supports for your students. Within our shop, we have adapted books, task cards, resources aligned to the VB map and the ABLES, behavior plan flowcharts, data sheets, curriculum, everything you need, whether you are an early childhood teacher or a high school teacher, we have all of the resources that will meet those students' needs. So head over to shop.theautismhelper.com to check out all of our resources.